speaks about the baptism of some new believers that take place near the house of Cornelius. It's a very interesting story. It's a story that's uh, actually given a lot of airtime in terms of the length of story, the amount of text that is given to this. And I think that it is probably easy for me, maybe for you as well, to read through Acts and miss the significance of this chapter because it probably, to our ears or to our reading, doesn't have quite the significance that it did to the early readers. So the, the context, the background, if I'm just kind of painting big picture strokes here with the paintbrush, we've got the Old Testament that tells us the story of God and God's revelation to God's people and follows the history of God interacting with a particular group of people through history and preparing the way for the coming Messiah that is kind of a setup for us preparing the way for the one who will come that will make things right. And then the four Gospels, we have four different perspectives, stories that are told concerning this one, the Messiah, the Emmanuel, God with us, the Christ who comes. But the story of Jesus, as we read through all of these books, centers around a very small geographical area in the Middle East, with a relatively small number of people. Jesus, for the most part, traveled about as far as you could walk in a day, maybe a couple days. Small area of direct influence with a small group of people. So we've got all of the Old Testament looking at a particular group of people, the first four Gospels speaking about this Messiah whose ministry fell within a certain boundary. And then we come to chapter 10 of Acts. And the whole story seems to take a dramatic shift. It's not that this hasn't been talked about before. It's not that we can't find places throughout the Old Testament and throughout the teachings, both in the prophets and in the Pentateuch and in the Gospels about what's to come, but it's as if nobody anticipated what was about to take place. And so in chapter 10, we have the good news, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that comes on Cornelius. What makes Cornelius so significant? Cornelius is a Roman centurion, a soldier. Part of the Roman system, a Gentile, not a Jew. Through all of this that has happened to the disciples and their interactions with Jesus, I'm sure Jesus attempted to get them to see a bigger picture. Jesus' death and resurrection, a powerful, powerful point in history. And there certainly are Gentile stories that we find throughout Scripture. But there has been this notion held on to by the disciples that others may be blessed, 
but God's favored people are the group of which they are a part. And however others might live off the spillover, okay, but this is a story about us, the disciples basically say. Here Peter is invited to the home of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, God-fearing, God-loving, very religious and spiritual in every way. We look at this passage and we find that he's described as a man who leads his family well, who is God-fearing, who is involved in prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. A person who has earned the respect of the Jews because he has respected the Jews. Been fascinated by their spiritual journey and devoted to a pursuit of God. And it says at the end of a period of praying, he has a visitation, a vision from a heavenly being. We are this month talking about prayer. I'm just so glad that this chapter is included in this month as one of our readings. It is a story that is all centered around prayer and speaks about the things that we're going to talk about in the months to come giving and fasting. Not only is Cornelius engaged in prayer, but the other key player in this story, Peter, is engaged in prayer as well. And the quick synopsis is that the visitation from heaven to Cornelius says, send for Peter, because Peter has some things to tell you. Peter, the next day, is in prayer on the rooftop about the time of lunch. And he's in prayer and has a vision that is really confusing to him. And the people that were sent from Cornelius say, we've been sent by our master to come and take you to where Cornelius is. And Peter's heavenly visitation prepared him for that, and Peter went. All around prayer. We can talk a lot about various aspects of prayer. We did last week. We try and talked about, tried to talk about a, a framework for understanding prayer, and I'll refer to that again in a few moments. We can talk about why we even pray. Questions that we have about how we pray. I'm going to ask at the end of the service something we've done uh, previous times. I'm going to ask Jared to come up at the end of the service and and um, talk about a little bit of his journey, but ask questions about this text or prod us further in our discussions as a community of faith. I know Jared's been on a prayer journey himself, and prayer sometimes is a very private thing, but it's also a community thing. This piece talks about baptism. I love a statement that was made about baptism by N.T. Wright. He said, baptism isn't really so much an individual thing. It's about joining in with a community. Becoming part of a community. Saying yes to God's family. Being Christ's bride. 
and you've probably heard that line, I'm not so sure I want to be part of a group that has me as one of its members. <laughs> but in this group, the beautiful thing is that we're all kind of in that boat, unworthy to be part of that group that is identified as the bride of Christ. None of us deserve that. What a great place for all of us to join in, unworthy to be invited to that banquet, to that celebration, and say, you got invited too? I was really surprised I got invited, but you? No, 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 that's not right. So what do we do about these various questions we have? I remember one of the, my example of unanswered prayer, and I don't know why it resonates so much with me, why it's stuck with me all of these years. But it's one of those things that for some reason has locked itself in my memory bank about unanswered prayer. And in the big scheme of things, it's so minor. It was um, not a life-changing prayer at all for anyone else. But given the um, proximity we are here to the academic neighbor that we have next door, this seems so fitting as a college student to sophomore. I had a major exam the next day, and I had postponed some of my studying. I know very few people ever do that, but I did. And I thought, I'm just going to spend a good long night. I've got some good snacks, um, some things that can keep me awake. I will spend the night getting ready for the big exam at eight o'clock the next morning. And as I recall, I kind of propped my head like this and the books wide open and fell fast asleep. Woke up and thought, oh, if I can just get a couple hours sleep, I'll wake up really, really early and I'll do this. So that was my next plan. I woke up earlier than I thought I was going to wake up, and I thought, okay, just another half hour rest, and then I'll study, and then I slept straight through until 15 minutes before the class and the exam. I had just enough time to throw on a pair of blue jeans and make it across campus to where the test was being given, and I remember very, very clearly in route on the sidewalk between those large buildings, I actually offered this prayer. God, if you've not yet chosen a time for the second coming, <laughs> now would just be a fabulous time from my perspective. I didn't pray for anyone to get injured. I wasn't asking for the professor to get ill. It just seemed like it was the right prayer at the time. I kept walking to class, looking at the eastern sky, just waiting for it to part open. Didn't happen. Unanswered prayer. I don't know if I didn't have enough faith or if God had actually already picked the time and didn't decide to change it for my uh, little exam. What do we do with some of the tough questions of prayer. Well, once again, I'd like to just a quick review of last week, a framework to look at prayer, that we are wired, wired. We are woven together 
for intimacy. And spiritual intimacy calls us to a place where we long to know and to be known. We live that out with others, but it is part of our spiritual DNA. And whether it's living it out with others or in our relationship with God, they are so connected to one another that they can't be separated. We desire to see and to be seen, to hear and to be heard, to have a heart that's soft enough to feel and to connect with someone else's heart, to know and to be known. We sometimes find ourselves stumbling through that in life and doing it in ways that are out of balance. So in prayer, I may list all of the things that are in my heart and mind so that I can be heard by God. But I never pause long enough to hear. I might find myself seeking to know God and studying and reading and digging in to try and understand God better, but never open up myself completely to God's search of me. Maybe using the excuse, well, God really knows me anyway. God must know me. But there's a difference between what God knows because God is God and my own honest transparency, authenticity before God. The psalmist in 139.23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way within me. What would it mean for me to just open myself up, all of those corners that I've just kind of kept to myself, and say, okay, God, know me. Send your light into all of those places. And God speaks through Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah chapter 29, and says, You will know me when you seek me with your whole heart. There is within us a desire to know and to be known. And prayer moves us as this incredible gift from God, a tool to step into those places of intimacy. I think prayer serves many purposes in our life. It's a place where we come and bring our hearts hurt, our petitions, our cries to God. This week, I was spending some time with God in prayer, and I know that many of you know, because I've spoken about it several times on several occasions, that my prayer journey has included a prayer mansion, a, a place where God allows me to come to meet. It's based out of the passage in John 14, where it says that God has prepared a place for us, and if we will be obedient, God will um, love us and come and make God's mansion with us and in us. And so I have, through my years of prayer, begun to create various rooms in a mansion that teach me various things. So whether I'm sitting at the kitchen table or on the porch or I've gone up to an upstairs hallway or a staircase All of those places have significance to me as I pursue this relationship with my Creator. I don't know why I had never considered this before, 
But this week, I felt like there was a new room added to my mansion of prayer. I have in the past had a, still do, a, in this prayer time, a, a library where there are various volumes to pull off the shelf to look at a number of things, but I've never had, or at least never thought about, a film room. Now, I've often thought in heaven that there's got to be a film room where you go over the, you know, the whole life. You get to play it out again. And I'm not really so interested in anybody else ever seeing the film of my life's journey but there are a number of people whose film I'd like to sit in on so I could show moments where I was correct about some things that have never gotten quite played out correctly. And just because that is a desire of mine probably precludes me from heaven, I think, but I'm not sure. But I thought in this film room, much less about a collection of great films as what happens in some sports teams where a coach will play the game films from the previous week or two or three. Sitting down in the room and watching on the screen all that happened in the previous games. And if you're a player on that particular team, you get to watch as what you did unfolds on the screen and Maybe some moments where, you know, there's a cheer and things went well, and then there are other times, which is really the purpose of looking at the films, is for the coach to critique and to say, okay, let's replay that again. Did you see what you did right there? Apparently you didn't. Let's play it again and see it again. And you're hoping that you're not in the doghouse for a long time. In fact, you prefer that there's at least a little bit of levity, that maybe teammates laugh a little bit or... Don't scoot away from where your chair is as if you've suddenly become kryptonite to everyone else. But the hope is that in replaying those films, the coach steps in and says, okay, here's what we're going to work on. As I'm praying, I'm feeling like several of those films are getting played. And the desire in that moment is, really, can we get out of the film room and get to the practice field? It's really dark in the film room. It's kind of pressure-packed. Can we get out to the practice field and practice these things? And then the movement goes from there to beginning the rehearsals for what's to come. This movement from what has been in the past to what's on the horizon and we're going to learn from and work toward. I think that prayer is very much like that. That prayer is this reflection, but this movement toward the practice field as I begin to rehearse with God what it's like for the kingdom of heaven to actually work through me and work out the places where I live and the people with whom I interact. There's a wonderful passage in Job. It speaks about dreams. It is spoken through the words of Elihu, one of the friends, but it's not one of the three friends that aren't really friends because they don't help at all. It's from Elihu, the fourth one, 
Job has gone through some tragedy, and four friends are there to try and provide some comfort. Elihu is the youngest and waits to the very end to speak out of respect for the others. The other three give just kind of mixed advice, um, things that are like half-truths. Elihu speaks, and God honors what Elihu says, endorsing it as correct. And Elihu speaks to Job and says very clearly, God speaks once this way and another time in a different way, sometimes in dreams and a vision of the night. And then he goes on to explain why God might speak through dreams or through a vision of the night. It says very specifically that mankind might be preserved to keep mankind from pride and to preserve people from going down to the pit. God does speak. Sometimes this way, sometimes another. For our protection to save us from that which would happen if we followed our own pursuits to their natural consequence. It is preserving us, preparing us, keeping us. In fact, one of the things that, one of the theories behind what some scientists say about dreams is that dreams are an incredible way to protect us and help us to go through circumstances in a safe way to prepare us for unsafe circumstances. So when we dream, and we know that all of us dream every night, and we can go back with the technology we have now and know that children dream, not only do children dream, but infants dream, not only do infants dream, but fetuses within the womb dream. And the belief is that part of that dreaming process is that in the dreams we experience some frightening kinds of circumstances in a safe way. Frightening circumstances that ignite the endocrine system and the adrenal glands and all of those things in preparing us for things such as the fight or flight syndrome, that we can be prepared for that which is to come in a safe environment, in a dream setting, and allow that endocrine system to develop and to grow and prepare us for when those circumstances actually do take place and our internal body systems are prepared for those moments because it's prepared us ahead of time. I think if we fully understand prayer, prayer does that same kind of thing. In prayer, in intimate relationship with God, we have the opportunity to act and to interact, to see the game films, to go through the preparation, to think through the process of how God might be getting us ready, not always for circumstances we fully understand or know, but getting us ready when those circumstances come, whatever they might be. One of my all-time favorite films, maybe if I was asked to identify a favorite film, it might be this one. Searching for Bobby Fischer. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it's based on a true story of a young little boy who had a real skill in playing the game of chess. And in the course of his journey, he learns about the famous Bobby Fischer, and that's part of the storyline that's weaved into it. And his parents come to find out this skill in an interesting sort of way, and He's got a couple of tutors that teach him very different approaches to the game of chess. But one of the crescendo moments of this film 
is when this little boy in a tournament comes up against his rival, another incredibly skilled player. And the room is completely empty. All of the participants have been eliminated. And all of the parents have been forced to not be in the room because of their terrible behavior. So these two boys on stage in the final match, and it's timed so that after each move, they hit the clock and the clock shifts to the opponent. And the game begins and several moves take place and this wonderful little boy makes a move that maybe he shouldn't have made and his mentors are debating whether that was the right move or not and his opponent begins to move all kinds of pieces until he makes a move that he probably shouldn't have made. And the mentors recognize it and there's like a collective holding of the breath. And then this little boy The clock is on him now, but he knows this is a crucial moment. And it's as if he doesn't care about time any longer, almost as if in the movie, time slows down. And in his head, he begins to play out the game. 10, 12, 14 moves into the future. Bishop to king three. Rook takes bishop. Pawn takes rook. Pawn to queen two, three, four. Moves in his head that are going back and forth as he's thinking through all of this until in his head he sees the end of the game and he's won. In a beautiful grace-filled moment because this little boy wants everyone to win. He kind of gets up on his chair, too small, his feet don't even touch the floor, and he stretches his hand across the game table in a gesture of, let's call this a tie. And his opponent looks at him as if he's crazy. Intent on winning, he has no interest in a tie at all and hasn't seen the end yet. But the little boy has. He knows the next 14 moves. I think one of the reasons that scene so strikes a chord with me is that in prayer God allows us through God's spirit to think through the circumstances of our life's journey so that we might get to the place like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did who are able to say my God can rescue us from the fiery furnace. But if God chooses not to do so, it's okay, because God is God, and the fiery furnace is not the end of the story. It is as if if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in prayer, 
had already played the next 16 moves. And God took them to a place of such intimacy with their creator that even though they may not know what the king's next move was, they stepped forward confidently because they knew their creator. This passage takes such a dramatic turn because, among many other things, Peter, and then as Peter tells this story out of chapter 10 to all of the other disciples, they come to this powerful revelation. This isn't anything they control. This isn't anything they can manage as if they were trying to manage how the Holy Spirit would work and give oversight to God's handiwork in the world. Peter says, I've realized God's no respecter of persons, but anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, their sins will be forgiven. They are part of God's family. The doors have been thrown wide open. This is, this is an exclamation of what happens with Paul in Athens when he goes in just a few more chapters. I believe it's chapter 17 where he says to the people in Athens, you have a God that you've named the unknown God. Let me just tell you about this unknown God. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And through Jesus' words, who introduces us to the prayer that says, Oh, Abba, Dad, what you have said is unknown. God is saying, I want to make myself known. You to me and me to you. So that we can move from the film room to the practice field to life. And you know that I have you in the palm of my hand. Prayer is that which takes us to that place. Now I can pretend that I don't need the film room or the practice field. I can just act as if, you know, just throw the circumstances my way and I'll handle them. But my life has proven me wrong. (laughs) My journey has proven otherwise. But what a gift that God has given to us that we might be invited into the private place of God's courts to be in communion and intimacy and fellowship with our Creator. Jared, come on up. God's had you on a journey as well in prayer. First, just give us a couple pieces of that and then start throwing questions or help me in this dialogue of where we go from here Um, in terms of our conversations, how we spur one another on, anything else that's on your mind? Um, I just feel like like leaving... That was great, by the way. You don't need me up here today. 
Um, but leaving here, what are the, that's great to have like so many more scriptural stories of this, but what are like, I want to talk practical roadblocks that keep us from being able to pray like this. Does that make sense? Like, do you have, do you come up with, do you have roadblocks in your own life or in your prayer mansion? Is it just, you can pray everything to God <laughs> and then therefore you are empowered with angels to move boldly into every next step that you take. And you always feel confident that you've got mm-hmm. words of God to whoever you talk to and whatever you do. Does that make sense? Because that doesn't... Yeah. I, I feel like I'm stuck in a tension where I know this, and I know that I'm a child of God, and I know I'm invited into this, and I know I need to pray with authority, but I feel like my concept of God still dictates how I pray to God, and therefore my broken pieces of what I view God is or is not keeps me from moving forward with any sort of prayer that it means anything. Does that make sense? Yeah. Two quick responses. I hope I make them very quick. The first one is I think that confessional living is such a wonderful starting point because that's that's what it means about being known is to say when it feels like broken people. Less about creating something spectacular in some great prayer path or I'm now going to go online and find these things that I can take 10 steps to do. It's simply embarking on that and allowing some space to happen. For me, it is much like what happened in that film when he paused to think through the next 10 steps. It's like the clock stopped. Time slowed down and something shifted. That's my biggest roadblock, even though it's my profession to be a Christian. <laughs> a good one. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is to carve out in my week time that is committed to intimate interaction with my creator. So if we get that, then I feel like a huge roadblock for us as a church, at least for me, is the realization that God's answers to prayer can be loving even if they inflict pain on me. Because I think our, as a culture or my own aversion to pain, like all our, my prayers, many of them circulate around desires that I have for the goodness of things around me or the people I care about. And so what happens when the things that I'm praying for and the things that someone else are praying for come directly, like God can't answer both with yeses. Does that make sense? And at some point, God's answering yes and providing joy for someone provides pain for me in that that yes to them is a no to me. And I, I don't think that even if I have enough space and I can see 14 moves, that's still required, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to say, well, if the next move in trusting God is that I burn to death, then I'm willing to take that step. And that's great that we can pause today and be like, all right, everybody go have film time and like review your last week. But then if one of the answers is trust God to the fact where you can suffer or die, then we go, well, that's probably, that's probably not what God wanted for me anyway. So I'll like, it's one of these options. And that's false. It's a false concept of what God may be calling us to. And so I just feel like for, for me, it's, it's great that I can kneel and it's, I can get practical pieces of my prayer journey. That's great. But what good is it if in that time I'm not realizing that God, in God's goodness and God's love for me, still calls me into places of self-sacrifice? Yeah. And I think that part of what you raise is that it's that question that pushes us forward to the next question, that pushes us forward to the next question, that doesn't get fully answered but takes us to that next place in this journey of ours. For me, one of those places in the journey where the tension has 
escalated, described well by you, where a yes to someone else may put someone else in difficult straits, or when I don't see a yes to anybody, that a whole group of people seem in difficult straits and I don't see what's there, has shifted my understanding or view of God's character, that God's gift is freedom, The challenge of freedom is when it's misused and becomes painful and hurtful to others. And somehow in the midst of that, believing that there is a God of redemption that can take the worst circumstances of someone else imposed on me or my screw-ups that have ruined somebody else and bring about a redemption that is better than what was before. One of my convictions this week, Jared, was that sometimes my fear is that God can't fix what I screwed up. And I really live in that place where I'm trying to figure out how I can make it right when it's bigger than I could ever make right. And in that moment, I realized I doubted God's sovereignty. And I'd say, okay, God, I can't even fix that. Will you help in your sovereignty to make right what I've messed up? Two things that have really changed my prayer life in the last six months. The things that you pray for and the people that you're praying for, God loves and cares about them more than you do. Infinitely more than you do. And that's big. That's like you can say it in a sentence. But I've got people in my life that I'm praying for. I've got salvation and family members that I pray for. I've got teens and families that are broken. And when I am brought to tears by the journey of someone I care about, think how much more a God who is love loves and cares for and has been journeying with that person. And so really my prayer shifts from, God, let me tell you how much I care, to God, unleash all of your love in that situation now. Whatever, like, and that's why I'm just praying that God will allow God, God's tidal wave of love, ocean depth of love, for that person to go and just be present and maybe just so that person can be aware of how much God loves them. And that's different than me needing to go do anything for them. You see this shift? And the second thing is, is a posture of prayer, of kneeling before God. And for some of you, you've done that, and it's come in and out of vogue in your prayer life, and some of you, maybe that's new. But get to a point where you put your body physically in a posture of prayer before God. So that you turn around and kneel on a chair, or kneel and on your bed, or kneel all the way down on your knees. Um, that, that kneeling before a king was literally a death shot. We've talked about this before, that when you kneel before someone in, in times of swords and battles, you're saying that you can kill me. So if you allow me to stand up, then I can stand up. And everything I do in light of standing up is in honor. I owe to you because you allowed me to stand up and you didn't kill me. Well, I'm trying, and this is my 2014, I'm doing a whole lot, is even in quick moments, it's not like, oh, I need a half an hour to be like, kneel down and pray and, and say like you, I've been praying the Alcoholics Anonymous third step prayer that was given to me by a friend. It's so humbling and it's so good. And it's, do, Lord, do with me what you will. That I pray that and I stand back up. Like, God's got me. And it doesn't mean that there's certain things to reflect on and, and things that I blow and tape that needs to be reviewed. I blew it yesterday, and I've been reviewing it in my head. So your scripture or your sermon is perfect for me. But today I'm going to still bend down. Tomorrow I'm going to still kneel down. And I might wander, but I'm going to be on my knees a whole lot this year. And so God knows that I am God's. Like, I am set apart. I am the scripture that was described today. Like, that is me, and that's my identity. As often as I'll blow it, I'm going to be back before the Lord on my knees. So... What can God do for you if you posture your life and say, I'm going to stand up if you allow me to. And if you do, I'm going to be doing it for you. So.
shifted for me that scripture that says in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord and I've thought many times God if every knee is going to bow at some point in time I really today want to do it voluntarily (laughs) I want you to know that I'm willing and want to be in that posture so that's been a powerful verse for me as well or in the last couple months someone said that not I feel like that scripture to me has always been like God's going to show up and be like roar and everybody's going to be like oh my gosh you're God and bow down but what if all of a sudden it gets to a point where everybody realizes how much God loves them and out of response for how much God loves them they have no choice but to go to their knees that's a very different interpretation of that same scripture very beautiful I love you Jared thank you I love you too I'm going to invite the ushers to come, the band to play. We worship through giving. We worship through prayer. We worship through support of one another. Let this time be a time where something that you've heard this morning sticks and you take with you, whatever it might be. Father, thank you for these moments together. Thank you for your invitation to intimacy. Thank you for making yourself known and for wanting to know us deeply. 